Welcome to In But Not Of, a podcast dedicated to applying a Christian worldview to the study of history and culture. We're so glad that you could join us today. Welcome, everybody. So today in our second and final postscript from A Tale of Two Cities, we are going to look at Woodstock 99. So Woodstock 99 was the 30th anniversary of the original Woodstock 69 concert. It takes place between the days of July 22nd to July 25th in Rome, New York, which is about 100 miles from the original site. It's the former Griffiths Air Force Base. And just like all the other concerts, the population, the, the number of attendees there varies. So it ranges anywhere from 230,000 to about 400,000 people. Uh, it, so it's, it's you know, consistent with the size of what we saw with the other concerts. Some differences in Woodstock 99 that you'll recognize, though, and one of those was the 12-foot-high fence that is erected to keep out the ticketless people. So clearly a problem in Woodstock 69, Woodstock 94 was ticketless people coming into the show without paying. What's ironic here is this 12-foot-high fence is also broken through, but it's on Saturday night as people are trying to get out of the concert instead of into it. The other difference is this time we also have about 500 state police officers there for security, along with uh, many members of a security force from New York State as well, volunteer kind of security force. And uh, you're going to see at this concert, they basically have two main stages. There's some smaller stages as well, and there's even a film festival at this concert at Woodstock 99. The other difference in 99 is you see that MTV pay, you know, has a big presence here at this concert. So much so that out of frustration, Michael Lang has called it MTV stock since he felt he had you know, little control in comparison to his previous Woodstock you know, kind of creations. The other thing that you see is a big theme in Woodstock 99 is the number of corporate sponsors. They have corporate sponsors. They have ATMs on site. They have email stations. And their ticket prices continue to go up. So by today's standards, think of paying $230 for, uh, for your tickets for the three-day venue. And the concessions, just like 94, it's even worse than 99. So you have prices go up even further on soda, on water, on all sorts of things. Uh, and so you have the city of Rome, New York, which is impacted by this. Uh, they make money, of course, uh, things like that. But the other thing, just like any other site that you have where a tremendous number of people kind of converge on this town, they're not able to handle it. They run out of things. You know, their their resources are stretched beyond uh, beyond repair. And so you have all this happening, which is indicative of the other concerts as well that we've looked at. Rolling Stone did an article, I think it was in 2010, really looking at what a disaster Woodstock 99 was. There's not a lot of good press about this concert for various reasons, as you'll see, but uh, really Rolling Stone took the whole thing to task in in their article entitled Woodstock 99 Rage Against the Latrine. <laughs> so a uh, real creative title, and you'll see why that that makes sense. But the, the big thing that, it, you know, to, to call it that, it, it brings out the number one problem that they identify right away, which is the water problem. So they say, imagine hundreds of thousands of people in a, come to this concert. And another 10,000 people are, are present working the festival, doing things like that, making this group of people the third most populated city in New York State. And they say, now imagine turning off that city's water supply. 
which they argue essentially happens here. Now, they've said that the temperatures were pretty much in the 80s, uh, but there's been a lot of estimates that argue that the temperature was actually closer to 100 degrees. Now, I don't know if they're taking in heat index and humidity and things like that, but you, you run into that figure a lot. And so with conditions like that, clearly water becomes a huge necessity, not only to drink, but to keep people cool and, and some of those other things. Well, you end up with a lot of people uh, who struggle with, with not having enough water, so much so that lawyers for some of the festival goers uh, threatened to sue the organizers for negligence. So again, when you have money playing such a central role, you're also going to have these other negative things too. Also at the venue, you have a hot tarmac. So the Air Force base was essentially concrete. Now the sun, sun's rays are just beating down on this tarmac. And the other thing is, is the two major stages, there was about a mile and a half walk between the two. So festival goers end up having to trek, you know, a mile and a half across these boiling runways in this type of weather. And they end up treating more than 700 of them for heat exhaustion and dehydration due to the conditions and the lack of resources to support it. So that kind of sets the stage for you in terms of the setup. So I'm not going to, the other podcast, I kind of went through all the acts and things like that. For this, I'm just going to highlight some of the major things that happen because it has so much to find Woodstock 99, that it really, you know, in the, in the length of time that we have, I think it's, I think we should really focus on, on the things that really define this concert. And one of them is a group known as Insane Clown Posse. And uh, just like we talked about porno for pyros in 94, if you were to visualize, if you don't know who they are, visualize in your head what they probably look like, and you pretty much nailed it. They decide in their opening early on in the concert, in the three days here, they decide to take the stage at Woodstock 99 and begin throwing $100 bills into the audience. And they kind of sit there and watch playfully and gleefully as a, a, a near riot ensues. Now, part of that may be the $100 bills were a lot more valuable because they, you know, the, the price of the concessions. But right away, you see that there's kind of a negative thing that begins. Now, this is followed up a short time later by Kid Rock, who's still famous to this day. And he was one of the major players in 99. And he was certainly coming into his own then. He decides to encourage the crowd to begin to throw water bottles at the stage. Now, this was many people think this was done in reaction to the ticket prices or I'm sorry, the concession prices as kind of a protest. Now, on a personal level, I remember in 99 driving on the highway, driving home. I was coming home from somewhere and I knew the concert was happening. And I said to myself, let's see what Generation X is 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 up to. Let's hear what's happening in New York. And, you know, and I've told you I'm, I was an avid concert goer and. Um, I had just become a Christian in 96. So we're, we're talking about maybe, I don't know, two and a half, three years later. So I was very much still connected to the people, the music. And so I turned it on and I remember saying to myself, thinking to myself, how pathetic it sounded when Kid Rock was on stage to the point where he was using vulgarity for the sake of vulgarity. And then, you know, throughout the, the, the concert, you hear the, these constant shouts from organizers, people on stage for uh, trying to get women to kind of expose themselves, expose their breasts, things like that, amidst all the vulgarity. And I couldn't help but think, first of all, how much things have been, you know, the, the degradation that had occurred. 
And I began thinking that this really sounds like what you would experience if you walked into a boy's bathroom in a middle school and caught a bunch of eighth graders basically cutting it up. And and to me, that was really what Woodstock 99 sounded like. And this was coming from somebody who, I was about 30 years old at the time, and uh, this was coming from somebody who was very much a a fan of, of that, you know, some of the music anyways, not a lot of it, but some of it. And then as the weekend goes on, there's other events that Rolling Stone brings out in their article that happen. Uh, for instance, the Canadian alt-rockers, Tragically Hip, come out and sing a, sing O Canada, which provokes a reaction from the crowd, a negative reaction where they throw things at the stage, sing the Star Spangled Banner back. And before you get the sense that this was just a patriotic crowd, uh, the, the Rage Against the Machine comes out later in the weekend or at some point in the weekend, and they burn the American flag. And this is somehow celebrated. So you have, you know, quite a bit different reaction here. And what it, it kind of sets the theme for the weekend as you watch it. And you realize that we're just cheering chaos. We're either creating chaos or we're cheering it. And that kind of really, in a nutshell, that's the sense you get as you watch Woodstock 99. And I do have to tell you, if you do a search on YouTube, be careful uh, what you're going to run into. Uh, because it's not it's not going to be too long before you run into things that you, you probably really don't want to see. And uh, some of the other things that go on, though, uh, throughout the weekend is uh, Vern Troyer, who became famous for playing Mini-Me in the Austin Powers movies. He emerges as an MC on Saturday. And Rolling Stone talks about how Woodstock 99 was full of this odd casting and, and setting up weird lineup schedules. And, and this was this was one of them. For instance, they they critique the organizers because on Saturday they have a trifecta, a mellow trifecta, if you will, of Counting Crows, Alanis Morissette, and Dave Matthews, followed by Limp Biscuit. I'll come. I'll tell you who who, who they are in, in a second. But they said it didn't make much sense. Like you know, this kind of mellow grouping of individuals followed by Limp Biscuit. But I can't help but think, thank thank God, because you're going to see that things get really negative and nasty. And I can only shudder to think what would have happened if they grouped Limp Bizkit, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Kid Rock together. Uh, so, you know, for all the criticism here, I, I think there's a little bit of mercy <laughs> in terms of it being that way. You also see as the another scene that, that Rolling Stone talks about that was famous from the, the concert was a truck randomly driving through the audience. A truck. Now, this happened, uh, Fat Boy Slim was playing, and there was, a, there was a rave area under an airplane hangar. And they just an individual decided to just drive a truck through the crowd. Now, this is even worse than the Hells Angels driving through the crowd on their motorcycles at Altamont. A, a truck literally driving through the crowd. When you think again of what could have happened, and you might say to yourself, well... Okay, what about the security? Well, I told you the problem was you had 500 state police officers there. Okay, certainly a step up (laughs) from what we saw at Altamont, right? But you had 500 New York state troopers, but the local police force that we talked about that was going to help them, uh, maybe not officially police officers, but a security force of some kind, they end up disappearing and just melting into the crowd. Um, so this, this volunteer security, just, they're not reliable and they end up walking off the job and wandering off into the audience. So as usual, the security is either missing or severely shorthanded as things get out of hand. Surprise, surprise. 
I also talked to you last podcast about the crowd surfing, how annoying it was actually. And that's a personal thing on my, you know, on my part in 94, having going to a couple different shows and having to deal with crowd surfing. Um, you see in 99, this has an even more, uh, there, there's even more ominous consequences to this. And Rolling Stone thinks it was ridiculous that you had Alanis Morissette, for instance, performing Ironic, the song Ironic, and you have all these people crowd surfing. The music just didn't seem to match with what was happening. Uh, also, I would argue, and I'll, I'll talk about this in a couple minutes, the crowd surfing is really going to uh, you know, pay some really serious consequences as the weekend goes on. The other thing that happens at Woodstock 99 is, you know, sooner or later, as we have 30th anniversaries or, you know, first you have the 25th anniversary, 30th anniversary, you would think that the organizing, uh, the organization of these events would get better and better and better. And in some ways they do, to be fair. But in 99, what ends up happening is the Baseball Hall of Fame induction ceremony is happening the exact same weekend as Woodstock 99 in nearby Cooperstown, New York. So you can probably see this coming. What ends up happening, because that was planned months in advance as well, or you know, every year you know basically it's going to happen, the hotel rooms are, are gone. So people have nowhere to stay. You even have Howard Stern, Alanis Morissette, and George Clinton get turned away from hotel rooms because there's no vacancies. So sooner or later, this lack of planning seems to rear its ugly head at some point in every one of these, these, these shows. The other thing as the weekend goes on, I told you there was more than just the two stages. There's another stage called the Emerging Artist Stage. <laughs> and I thought it would be neat to look at the, the lineup of, of musicians and see who was considered an emerging artist in, in 99 that eventually emerged. Well, I was confused as confused by the lineup as I looked at it then as I am now because none of them really seemed to emerge. Rolling Stone says apologies to Muse and Ben Lee, who they they said basically emerged, uh, but I didn't recognize any of the names. And the other thing uh, that's that's interesting about Woodstock '99. Remember that the '90s. I I don't know what you remember, but I certainly remember the internet. You know the. Uh, the dial-up modem and all the rest of it, and how how within several short years, really, how how big things got. But so Woodstock.com in '99 was the website that a, accompanied the the show, and so I think I think you know uh, website development and things like that were really at their their infancy stages for for an event like Woodstock '99. And one of the things that happens is the official website doesn't really focus on peace, love, and rock and roll, and instead focuses on the amount of, or the number of topless uh, female festival goers. And so they, they post these all over, you know, all over their page. And of course, don't have permission to do this. You know, there's a lot of blame to go around, including the, the girls that were taking their shirts off, obviously. But this is going to be even more infamous because of what happens by the end of the weekend. And it goes beyond just being tasteless. The other thing is when you watch Woodstock 99 compared to even 94, you really get the sense of the overcrowding. These people are literally on top of each other. Now, remember the weather conditions that I told you about. And in the uh, as people were getting into the venue, 
uh, this was before microchips were placed in wristbands, for instance, thousands of people are trying to flood the site with fake passes in order to avoid paying the, the fees. And so they're, they're trying to deal with that. And there's, you know, they really are trying to squeeze every dollar that they can out of this, out of this, uh, this concert, which most of us would, would understand, right? Uh, this is certainly a, a big part of capitalism, but because there's so much, uh, attached to the Woodstock kind of narrative, this is, you know, what is happening? We're really shown how corrupt we've become as a society and, and things like that. Um, now, I hope I say his name right, but also what happens as the weekend goes on is, it, is a musician named Wyclef Jean uh, comes out and he tries to recreate Jimi Hendrix's uh, Woodstock performance from 69, which fails miserably, by the way. But he tries to do the Star Spangled Banner, uh, you know, reminiscent of uh, Alt or not Altamont, I'm sorry, of um, uh, Monterey. He tries to light his guitar on fire, uh, none of which really works well at all. And it's, it's just this notion that you see of trying to recapture something that was spontaneous. And really the whole Woodstock enterprise is designed to do that, to, to capture that spontaneous thing, which we've talked about. But they definitely try that in 99 as well. Now, I want to go back to what I said about the crowd surfing for a second, because this is where things get, things get really, really bad by the end of the weekend. So I want you to picture you know, a couple days here of topless women, all of this being encouraged from the stage by many of the, the people who were MCs and the bands themselves. And then uh, having some of these women being passed, passed around on top of the crowd as they're, you know, crowd surfing. Well, I want to go back to an individual named uh, uh, Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit. He comes out and, uh, I don't really know how to describe their music. If it was kind of hardcore, I guess, uh, a fusion between rap and really heavy, heavy music. And this guy comes out and he incites the crowd. He, he encourages them to let out some negative energy. We need to get some negative energy going here. And uh, there were several songs that he plays, but one of them is a song called quote unquote break stuff. So surprise, surprise, people begin breaking stuff. And, you know, it, and so what ends up happening, too, is it's really pathetic because he gets the crowd amped up this way and and the people are going crazy and, and he's, you know, he's revving them up. He's he's definitely coming close to inciting a riot here. And then he tries to bring it back and say, OK, now that we've let our negative energy out, let's let's get some positive energy. <laughs> it doesn't really work that way. Right. And uh, going back to my analysis when I was listening to this at the time, what amazes me now when I think back to it is Fred Durst was almost as old as I was in 99. He was, I think, almost as 29 years old, almost, you know, I was 30. And so this, this is very close, or I was going to be 30. So we were within a year of each other. And to think that he was that old and, and behaving the way that he did is embarrassing. I mean, he really, when you think of how many people were probably 18, 19, 20, and here you got a guy that's almost 30 years old inciting this type of riot. You know, it was just unbelievable. But it gets even more serious than that because it was during this point where they believed that some females were, were sexually assaulted in a major way. Um, they've even been called gang rapes. Um, it also happened during a, a heavy metal, uh, you know, real heavy rock group called Corn. They think between those two sets, some really bad things happen to, to females. 
There were 44 people eventually arrested at Woodstock 99, but only one was actually charged with sexual assault. You can imagine in chaos like this with the limited number of security they had, um, how hard it was to to get eyewitnesses that would talk anyways and things like that. So a real, real disaster here. And if that wasn't bad enough, the concert essentially ends. Now, the Red Hot Chili Peppers are also uh, can be very vulgar in their own way. But but unlike Limp Biscuit, Fred Durst, I would say that the Chili Peppers were a legitimately very talented band. Very talented. Unfortunately, they didn't have the discernment to know that with the, the mood of the festival and what had happened, they come out to pay homage to Jimi Hendrix and they decided to do a cover of Hendrix's tune, Fire. At which point, they, the crowd, many members of the crowd begin to set fires, huge bonfires, breaking, vandalizing, uh, you know, trailers, burning everything they can get their hands on. And now this becomes basically a full-blown riot. And more police are, are called in to, to maintain order. Thankfully, it didn't get, get you know, even worse than it was. Um, but this is, this is it. This is how Woodstock 99 ends and the legacy of Woodstock. Uh, as defined in 99. So as we look at these events, okay, Michael Lang basically argues, as he looks back at this, that a couple of hundred kids ruined, ruined this whole thing for everybody else. He said the bands were too edgy and people reacted badly to the music. Well, Mr. Lang, you reap what you sow. You see, because if you remember, this was the same guy who called Altamont Speedway, quote unquote, perfect, as he looked at it as a possible venue for the concert. And, and don't forget that Lang was never this, this counterculture, you know, kind of purist. He never was against making money at all of these events, even at the original. And, uh, you know, he, he basically shows too that everything, including revolution, can be bought and sold. And certainly Woodstock 99 is, is, is that comes through in spades. And the other thing, as you think about reaping what you sow, when you put on a concert, and, and I want you to think about the different types of reactions that different types of music generate, for instance. So Woodstock 69, you go to a concert and you see Crosby, Stills and Nash, John Sebastian, Arlo Guthrie, Joan Baez. Think about what's, what those react, that type of music, the type of reaction you get there. Now think about what type of emotions are stirred up by music from the likes of Limp Bizkit, Insane Clown Posse, and Kid Rock. You can clearly see, uh, you know, a real consequence of the type of music that's that's celebrated. I remember back in the, uh, basically 1990, I think it was that early in the 90s, seeing Bob Dylan in the pouring rain uh, at, a low, at an outdoor concert venue. And uh, people were more interested in just staying dry. His music certainly wasn't going to produce, you know, riots and things like that. But Metallica shows up a short time later at the same outdoor concert venue, and it's chaos. There's there's fences broken in another outdoor facility in the same state. Uh, you, you know the uh, the grassy hills when when the rain came, they absolutely the Metallica fans absolutely destroyed the the outdoor uh, venue for a while. And this is you know this is what you get when you mix this idea of free love with anger, violence, and alienation. You see, the free love, uh, it, the consequences of, of that is often anger, violence, and alienation. 
in some ways, it was what we saw when flower children met Charles Manson. You had a hundred degree heat here in this middle of this, this, this concert, a lack of facilities, and you had a generation here, a group of people. And, you know, thinking back to the late nineties, early 21st century, this was also, at least in the kind of the male, uh, the male cultural scene of the time period, young, young adult male. Uh, you had the WWF, the WWE, uh, pro wrestling, for instance, that a lot of the men were interested in. And this was known as the Attitude Era, where female degradation was at its all-time high. It was almost borderline uh, soft pornography to turn it on. That's how bad it was. And I was thinking, too, it was also the time period right around 99, 2000, when the show Jackass premiered on MTV, which was kind of a, a, a stunt prank show, if you remember that. But very uh, mean spirited and stupid, and 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 I'm not against prank shows. For I'm a huge fan, actually, of prank shows. There's some really good ones on. This was not one of them, and it kind of you know those two things made me think of what we see at Woodstock '99 and kind of what was in the air at the time. You did have to, not to be to totally negative, but you did have positive. There was a much more diversity in terms of race and the type of music that we saw, like James Brown, DMX, Ice Cube, Los Lobos. We're all at Woodstock 99, but I'm sure that, you know, old timers like Willie Nelson, John Entwistle and Elvis Costello, who were all there also felt a bit out of place as well. And it's clear as you watch Woodstock 99, that this was, this had a lot more Altamont in it than Woodstock. And you have to say that all the good and the bad lays at the feet of the Woodstock generation. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't celebrate the good and ignore the bad. Look at this past summer. You can't embrace protests for racial equality and then ignore the violence committed by some of those who attend those protests, including the killing of police officers. As a matter of fact, if you're silent, it suggests complicity. And the same can be said for the attempted coup at the Capitol. You can't post comments that incite violence and then be quiet when violence is committed on your side and just call it, you know, it's a few bad apples. You have to own the good with the bad. And Woodstock 99 is really what happens when a great cause is divorced from music and overindulgence. Because you had overindulgence at Woodstock 69, but you also had the causes. In, in 99, you don't have that. You just have music and overindulgence. And it's sad because over the course of 30 years, you had, these pin you had pinnacle moments on the stage and in the crowds. But you had human beings showing over and over again that the testimony of Scripture is correct right? We are made in the image of God, capable of great beauty, creativity, but also great sin and destruction. You had great talent at each concert and great tragedy as well. In 99, you had the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Bush, Live, Jewel, Alanis Morissette, Creed, but you also had Limp Bizkit. And at the end of the day, who is Woodstock 99 most connected with? Well, what about the work of the Woodstock generation? Did it endure? Well, yes and no. You have the, in, in, you know, where we see it endure is in progressive politics. But we don't see it endure in the love and the brotherly love and togetherness and peace. You don't see it. And in some ways, those who fought the establishment in the 60s and 70s are the establishment today. Except today, they're showing themselves to be much more intolerant and authoritarian than the establishment that they attempted to displace. You know, 1 Corinthians 3 talks about uh, the work in, in terms of Christians standing before Christ, being judged for their work and their ministry. 
And the, the idea of, of if anyone's work being built upon foundations with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. It will be disclosed, of course, scripture says, through fire. Well, what kind of work do we see left behind in, in, at Woodstock? Well, we have selective memories. For one thing, we have the spinning of events to suit a narrative. We see that throughout the Woodstock enterprise. But the good news is the decades that showcase the Woodstock generation and beyond also shows that God continues to call those out of darkness into his marvelous light. Roger McGuinn, Chris Hillman, Barry McGuire, Alice Cooper, uh, members of bands like Korn and Megadeth, incredibly talented musicians end up coming to Christ through all this darkness. And eternally, this matters. You know, we watched the noble causes and desires for change in 69. And we see that humans still desire the things that only Christ can ultimately bring. And we see that the darkness of personal and collective sin drove some into the arms of a loving Savior. But for far too many, it drove them and their offspring deeper into a cultural and spiritual abyss. I'm going to leave that there. And unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. But remember that all truth is God's truth. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then that changes everything. We hope you enjoyed being with us today. Join us each week for In But Not Of, a podcast dedicated to applying a Christian worldview to the study of history and culture.